to be in the top 25% is not hard. To be in the top half, all you have to do is not make a mistake. So you think about hiring managers. The reason they hire people is because they focus on stuff that doesn't predict performance or motivation. <laughs> and then they make superficial judgments, how tall the person is, if they like the person, how prepared he was for the interview. None of that stuff is predictive. Welcome back, everyone, to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization Show, the home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology, business, and people. Here are your hosts, Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Geek Skeezers and Googleization, a show from the People Forward Network. I'm Ira Wolf, and thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. And I'm Jason Cochran. If you think this is just another podcast, think again. We are the voice of the most important crucial conversations that are confronting business leaders and people today. And our goal is to bring you ways to reimagine tomorrow and explore the convergence of business, technology, and people. Googleization Nation, you're in for another treat today. We've got as guest the one and only Lou Adler. He's CEO of the Adler Group, the father of performance-based hiring, and the Sherlock Holmes of recruitment. Lou's been preaching from the pulpit as long as I've been in the business, and even longer than that. I've been in the business for 27 years. We've been talking about performance from the time that warm body hiring and can you fog a mirror hiring was all the rage. There was enough people, you'd just pick them off the street, give them a job, and if they didn't work out, you replace them with another. But to give some testimony to how influential Lou is, um, because when he talks, a lot of people listen, he's got nearly 1.4 million followers on LinkedIn. That, for anybody who has followers on LinkedIn and is active, you know that's you got to be saying something that people pay attention. Here's a quote that I picked up from Lou. And, you know, this, you've heard me talk about the perfect labor storm over and over again. This is just another way of saying it. Uh, now that the demand for top talent is infinite, the supply of top talent is finite. You can't use a surplus of talent strategy to, f to fill open positions during a time when there's just a demand that's much greater than the supply. We usually don't do long bios, but I, I think Lou's is worth mentioning. I mean, he's been featured in Inc. Magazine, Business Insider, Bloomberg Sherm, The Wall Street Journal. He's the author of a few books, The Essential Guide for Hiring and Getting Hired, and an Amazon top 10 bestseller, Hire With Your Head. Um, in his spare time, Lou is the host of Almost Daily Recruiting Show, and he focuses on addressing the challenges involved in diversity hiring without compromise. So we'll be talking a little bit about that. And Jason and I and Googleization Nation are really excited to hear more about what Lou has been writing about recently called performance-driven hiring. Now, Lou is really speaking our language, but before we get there, Jason, it's time for our, one of our favorite segments, Perfect Labor Storm. On each episode, of Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization, we turn our focus to just one disruptive, surprising, or worrisome trend that we believe you should know. And we always try to relate that to our guests. So here's today's perfect labor storm trend. This was a poll by on LinkedIn by our guest, Lou Adler. He asked, will career growth and job satisfaction become more important when changing jobs and comparing opportunities? If you felt a few executive jaws drop, it's because 59% of the participants said yes to very, very important. Career growth and job satisfaction would be very, very important. And 32% said very important. So uh, do some quick math there. Your 81% say yes, over, overwhelming yes. That confirms what Pew Institute found, research, 63% of U.S. workers quit their job in 2021 because of low pay. Now, that's significant. We can't, we, we can't let that go. That was the number one reason. But 63% left because they saw no opportunity for advancement. 57% felt disrespected at work. 
So we hear a lot about flexibility in the news. 45% quit because they wanted to choose when to work. I thought this was interesting because we hear a lot of buzz about quiet quitting. Way, this was way down the list. And I know employees, employers like to blame uh, the employees for having a, a lackadaisical attitude and, and not having that good work ethic, work ethic. But way down the list, people quit because they were working too many hours, which sort of throws that, that argument out a bit for, for many people. Um, but even 18% quit because employers required a COVID vaccine. So there are some people that will find a lot of excuses, a lot of reasons to leave. But top of the list is going to be what we're talking about today. And Ira, that makes me think of a trip that I just recently made this summer, last month to an amusement park in July with my son, Duke, for the first time. Um, we went on water coasters, wooden coasters, iron coasters, water slides, and a whole bunch of other activities. And it was also free unlimited drinks all day too. But could you imagine if that park only had one roller coaster that you could ride over and over again? Aside from probably us getting sick, it would also get really monotonous after just a few cycles through. And I can't help but imagine if this is what so many professionals right now are feeling when it comes to their careers. They're hopping on the same coaster each and every day, running on the same path. And they're wondering when they'll get to go down a better, more exciting path one day in their career. And while it would be really easy to point the finger of blame at employees by saying things like, hey, you should own your own development and career. The truth is that organizations are culpable now for creating compelling paths inside their own organizations, or they're gonna be at risk of losing their most valuable people. And that's why I'm excited that we have Lou coming on today, the mastermind of purpose-driven hiring, so that he can help us set the record straight on how to hire and keep top talent. So real quick here before we bring Lou on, a uh, reminder for anybody who's listening, you get SHRM credits. Uh, simply go up to googleizationnation.com, click on the podcast uh, menu tab, and there's a form, a short form. Just fill it out. Let us know that you listened, what you learned. Uh, and then we will send, send you back the activity code. You can earn anywhere between a half and a full credit. Uh, also, while you're at Googleization Nation, if you haven't subscribed to our newsletters yet, uh, please do so. And uh, if you're listening to the show, please leave a rating, especially on Apple, uh, and a review. We'd really appreciate that. We're now in the top 2.5% of all podcasts, and our goal is to become in the top 1%. So please help us do that, especially if you like what you hear. Perfect. Well, this seems like the perfect time now to go ahead and bring on today's guest, Mr. Lou Adler. A big round of applause for Lou. Yeah, well, yeah. I, that was, what, three people, and I think it was your dog in the background, so I really appreciate that. <laughs> Humble as well. Right, <laughs> right well, let's say this. Uh, I was saying when you say you're in the top two and a half percent, you want to be the one percent. I I think this might drop you to the five percent range, so uh, I better be careful about what yeah, I, I say. I don't think so. That uh, and uh, not not with one point four million followers, Louis. So let me kind of just. I know you're going to ask me a lot of questions. I'm not going to let you. Uh, but I was listening to what you were saying about the Great Resignation and all this kind of stuff, and it reminded me of a story that I always tell candidates and it's, and I think it's incumbent upon candidates and companies alike to try to drive success. So when I talk to a candidate, I don't do recruiting anymore, but when I did, I always would, so let's assume I was recruiting Jason. I said, Jason, I'm only gonna present four candidates to my client. If I decide to present you, there'll be a 25% chance you'll get this job. So in three or four weeks, if I present you, you're gonna get a job offer. But before I give you that offer, I'm gonna ask you this question. I'm going to say, forget the money. Why do you really want this job? And I expect you to tell me about the work that's motivating to you, about the people, why you think this job could be a career move, and why you think this is something where you could really uh, put your platform for two to three years. Because if you can't describe that without putting talking about the money, we're not going to make you the offer. But to get you that information is coming upon me and my client to get you that information, and it's coming upon you to make sure you get it as well. So, so the idea here is that too many candidates focus on what they get on the start date and not enough of what they're actually going to be doing, the stuff that drive job satisfaction. 
And that happens to the companies too. They're trying to fill jobs real quickly. So both parties are culpable in making this decision. This isn't coming upon every, for the candidate, it's a lifetime change. This is not an insignificant move. And for the client itself, it's probably less significant than this for the candidate. We're going to hire 20 people. You're one of 20. Well, I don't want to be too superficial. But I think that's really the issue is that we, we tend to overfocus on short-term information when it's really a long-term decision. And I think solving that problem is really the key to driving satisfaction and improving quality of hire. Sorry for that interrupting all your questions, but I thought that was important to say. It was, it's an answer to a question. It was like Jeopardy. <laughs> you gave the answer and we'll pick, we'll pick out the question and it answered it. So no problem at all. Let's talk about this. I mean, you, you are, you've been talking about performance-based hire. When I came into this business uh, you know, 27 years ago, your name popped up and followed you and been following you ever since. I'm one of those 1.4 million along the way. What, describe, can describe to our listeners what performance-based hiring is? Because the reality is you've been talking about it a long time, but there's a lot of conversations now about how challenging it is to get to to monitor uh, a remote workforce to get people to perform my belief is and i've said this over and over again is that performance management wasn't very good before people didn't know what the metrics were they didn't really understand what was what was required of somebody to make them successful um, because you hired people for one reason and then you you, your metrics and your management of them was completely different when they're on the blocks. But you've been, you have a process. I mean, you literally have a system in place that's based on performance. So, so let me kind of go back to give you the answer to that both. So I'll go back to my first search assignment 44 years ago, and I'll bring it up to today uh, with that issue of uh, remote workforce. My first search assignment was for manufacturer or plant manager in the automotive industry president whom I knew, and I had background in manufacturing before I got into recruiting. So my background is engineering, manufacturing, operations, supply chain. Uh, and I was a pretty young guy running a company, uh, but I didn't like the group president, so I quit and became a recruiter. I actually gave six-month notice, so uh, which is another story. But my first search assignment was for a plant manager in the automotive industry. President said 15 years experience, engineering degree, background in this kind of manufacturing facilities, et cetera, et cetera. Traditional job description. So I looked at Mike and I knew the fellow. I said, Mike, this is not a job description. That's a person description. Let's put the person description in a parking lot because a, a job doesn't have skills, experience, and competencies. A job is stuff that people do. Let's talk about what the person needs to do. He said, okay, I want someone to turn around the plant. I said, what's wrong with the plant? And he said, it's pretty bad. So let's walk through the plant. We spent an hour walking through the plant. It was a crummy plant. Dirty uh, manufacturing processes were uncontrolled, unclean, a lot of scrap. Layout was terrible. Logistics was terrible. And I was very comfortable in that environment. We came up with seven things in an hour that this person had to do to turn the plant around from a unprofitable or marginally profitable to uh, significantly profitable if they did that in 12 to 18 months. I have never used a job description uh, that defines skills, experience, uh, and competencies since that day, 1,500 or 2,000 job descriptions, all define the work a person needs to do to be successful. So now let's take your situation there, Ira, you just talked about with that. If we're in a remote workforce and we're working with one client that has a lot of remote workforces, I said, let's talk about what that looks like. What does it take to be successful in a remote environment? Well, they got to be independent. They got to be reliable. They still got to, I don't care if it's day or night, they got certain projects they've got to do and there's a certain timeline. In software development, the timeline might be 24 to 48 hours, but so be it. That's what it is. For another project, it might be three to four weeks. Uh, irrespective of that, sometimes it requires teamwork in a remote environment. Sometimes it's live and on site, but we define the work and the environment in which that work takes place. So now if I'm interviewing a candidate, I'm going to dig into their accomplishments. So I, this is how I interview candidates. I say, tell me about it. Here's some work we need done. Tell me about something you've accomplished that's related to that. And I'll spend 10 or 15 minutes digging through all the facts uh, because I understand the job. So I'm just looking for a comparability. And then I start asking about accomplishments over time. So I start seeing the trend line, how flexible, how capable the person is, who they've worked with, how they've done it. So that's the essence of performance-based hiring. Purpose-driven hiring, maybe I, that's not necessarily my favorite term. I call it win-win hiring. Because when I asked Jason earlier, hey, uh, I'm gonna, you have to get this information. 
my goal is for the candidate to be excited after a year or two on the job and the hiring manager saying, I'm glad we hired this person. That is a hard objective to achieve, but by defining performance in the environment in which it takes place, it's possible. And Lou, are there some consistent predictors of success when hiring someone? Well, let's say this. I, I wrote this, and I'm going to say it was a bit of a glib argument, Jason. Uh, I said, you know, to be success, to be in the top 25% is not hard. To be in the top half, all you have to do is not make a mistake. So you think about hiring managers. The reason they hire people is because they focus on stuff that doesn't predict performance or motivation. <laughs> and then they make superficial judgments, how tall the person is, if they like the person, how prepared he was for the interview. None of that stuff is predictive. Uh, so if you don't make a hiring mistake, the candidate's going to be in the top half. Uh, from a candidate standpoint, same thing. Don't make a hiring mistake. Don't overvalue what you get on the start date. Really focus on the work. And if the company doesn't tell you about the work, say, ask, say, can you tell me a little bit about, uh, can you tell me a little bit about what this job's all about and some of the challenges you face? I'd like to give you some examples of work I've done that's most related. So now you've got both sides focusing on the work itself. Uh, and the work itself is uh, clearly motivation to excel uh, is put you in the, I'm going to say that actually puts you in the top 25%. But I basically say, you know, if you're a good person, all you have to do is be competent. You have to be reliable, getting your stuff done on time, on, on budget. You have to be productive. You got to get enough work done to say, hey, you're in the top half. And you got to be motivated to do that. And you got to be a good teammate. So those are the four characters, competent, reliable, productive, and a good teammate. That gets you in the top half, but you can't make a mistake on any of those factors. If you're good at any one of those factors, you'll be in the top quartile. Now, that's a bit glib comment, but the reality is probably pretty true. And you look at the great resignation, it's probably two of those are gone um, because Canada's all focused on the money. None of those four focus on the money. And yet everybody focuses on the money and filling jobs quickly. No, it's about the working to do and do you want to do that work. So, Jason, your answer is, are there factors that predict it? Yes, those factors that predict the work, not what you get on the start date. And oh, people always overvalue what they get on the start date, not about the work they're doing. So, Lou, as, a, as an employer... What can you do? So you've identified, and I'm going to assume that most people are going to agree that those four factors uh, are are the important ones, or they should at least listen to you uh, as they are. Uh, what can they do? I mean, how do they find those? What's the process? Is, is how do they identify people who have those skills? What's the process? Well, that's just two two questions there. So to me, the first question is: I'm working with a mid. I don't do any recruiting, but I help companies implement performance-based hiring, and my team does. Um, so I'm working with one mid-sized company right now. The president's a woman, great lady. Uh, she said, "How do I implement performance-based hiring?" I said, "The key is don't let job descriptions that uh, don't accept an open rex or job descriptions that list skills, experience, and competencies. They'll set you up. Make sure that the." Hiring manager to justify that position defines the work a person needs to do as five or six KPOs. KPO is key performance objectives. Define the task, the action verb, the work that needs to be done, uh, and the environment in which it takes place. As long as they do that, you're in the game. The second part of the other bookend is don't hire anybody until the team puts together, uh, we call it a quality of hire talent scorecard, but the idea is that have the team uh, compare their notes and provide evidence that this candidate meets those criteria of competent, uh, reliable, productive, and a good teammate. Has more issues than that, but at least the team evaluates that and provides evidence the person can do the work in that environment and those factors, you're in the game. They will figure out how to do it if you have those two bookends. Open the job rec, define the work, don't hire anybody until they've actually shared evidence that this candidate is competent and motivated to do the work. That's a little bit more to it than that, but that's what we're doing right now. I mean, it's uh, now there's pieces in between, which an hour, in fact, she called me last night. How do I do this part? Which is how do you find people? How do you write ads and all that? That's nonetheless, she's got the bookends right. And now we're trying to figure out how do I uh, achieve those bookends at the end and in the middle and the and the beginning. So. And Lou, our, our, you've mentioned job description several times and how many times that's a fatal error or a mistake that's made when hiring. Is that the most common mistake that you see organizations uh, kind of trip over when it comes to hiring the right people? Absolutely. I mean, so so let's kind of think in two ways. So you guys at the opening said uh, there were a lot of open jobs and the demand for talent is great in the supply, et cetera, et cetera. Look at the 14 million open jobs that are on LinkedIn today. You add LinkedIn, uh, ZipRecruiter, Indeed, 
there's probably 14 and all of our other jobs. There's probably 14 million open jobs. If you look at 99% of those, what do they list? Skills, experience, and competencies. Now, how many candidates think about all the top 25% who go home at night and said, I can't wait to do, uh, take an ill-defined average job and do the work that I'm actually going to be doing over and over again. It's your thing about the roller coaster. I can't wait to go on that roller coaster 500 times for the next 365 days because I'm getting more money. So yeah, of course, that's the mistake. The jobs are boring. You can look through any job you want, any job you want, and look on LinkedIn. What's the demand for this business intelligence analyst? I looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Business intelligence analyst on LinkedIn in San Francisco. The only differentiator was the logo. The logo of the company. I mean, that oh, oh, this is a pretty logo. I'll apply to that job. I mean, so you just look at the whole thing on job board. You say, no, take the roller coaster. We're going on the same roller coaster, and you're going to be bored stiffless when you get to the bottom. And you'll be excited for about 30 seconds, but the next four hours you're going to be bored. So it's so that is the big mistake is uh, defining the work. So when I define the jobs, and I put them on, I put jobs on LinkedIn, but they're stories. Hey, we're looking for someone that really wants to. And I remember one that was uh, an ad agency that I found about 20 years ago in New York City. And it was for a builder in Pennsylvania, Ira, where you live. And it said, and it was a big builder. It could have been Toll Brothers, but I'm not sure about that. But I saw that he showed me the ad he wrote. It said, your attention to detail drives our corporate profitability. That was a posting for a cost analyst. Your attention to detail drives our corporate profitability. It speaks to the person. Every other ad for a cost analyst said must have 10 years, must be detail-oriented, must have this, must be that. They're boring. Your attention to detail drives our corporate profitability. That's a game changer. That's how you write. It's marketing. A job posting should be marketing. So your question, Jason, is that the problem? Yeah, it is the problem. And the solution is throw them away. But job boards don't want to do it because they make money with turnover. Think about it. The reason job orders... Uh, Job boards exist just to sell more job postings. So the more turnover, the success, more successful they are. World could come apart, but if you're posting jobs, hey, we're in, we're in great, we're making money left and right, and the VCs will pour money into it. Sorry, you got me going here. No, Lou, as you were talking there, <laughs> I got, I got, I'm an old guy. I, you got to slow me down. Ask me some something that's not controversial. <laughs> well, it made me think of marketing, and I'm glad you brought that up because as you were talking and explaining that. In my head, I was thinking, why don't more organizations tap into their marketing expertise, their marketing leaders, to help them with the internal marketing that they're trying to do for employer bringing out the post jobs? Why would anybody post an internal job description? How many companies that make a product? I mean, this product has got my iPhone, has got a lot of technology. They never say, you, I go to Apple Store, I'm looking at the new 14 Model 14 coming out. Not once do they talk about the total specs other than it's got the M2 chip. I don't know what that is, but it does all this, all these cool benefits, better pictures, better this. So people talk about the benefits. No, job postings will take our internal technology profile and we'll post it. Now, is that a stupid idea? That's not marketing. I mean, you got to be an idiot to even think about posting a job description. I mean, so I mean, I'm sorry, guys, but she got me going here. It's, it's a marketing idea. So I post very compelling stories. I find people. I say, let's engage in a conversation. We're going to spend more time with fewer people. And look at our job posting. I think you'll find it kind of appealing. We tell real stories. I remember once we had a, a, it was one of our last searches that I did full time. It's a big, big job for a CEO for a major charity. Again, it was in, it was in Philadelphia. It was a cool, it was a big job. It was 300K uh, 20 years ago, so it's probably half a million or more today. Uh, but it was interesting. But I'm sitting there with the board, and they said, this person has to raise $50 million. Raise $50 million. That's all. They got to talk to – I said, tell me about it. They got to raise $50 million. They got to talk to all the wealthy people. They got to uh, strong arm them and all this kind of stuff. Our posting for that was saying was this. I'd like to tell you a story. Over the past five years, you raised $50 million. But it's what you did with the $50 million that's important. And then it said you created an anti-gang prevention program in the inner city of Philadelphia. You created a place where mothers could work and have a safe place for their children after school. And it listed five or six things that would impact this $50 million for this charity. Then the next line said, if you want this story to be yours, send us a story about something you've accomplished. Finish the search in a week. 
the story was so compelling. People, oh, I want to do that. I want to do that. It's not about the uh, raising the $50 million. Yeah, that was the core, but you don't advertise must raise $50 million, must do this, must do that, which is demeaning. You said, here's the impact of the work you can make. Just like this other one was a cost analyst. Your attention to detail drives our corporate profitability. You get that inner motivator, and that's what you're trying to sell, get people excited about it. So, I mean, it's so you can take a, a, an entry level job, three or four years of experience to chairman of the board, which is a huge job. Focus on what people do with what they have. Tell a story around it. Let people engage in a conversation to see if this work is meaningful. I mean, that's really the key. And that's not that's not rocket science. It's kind of common sense. But why people in HR don't apply common sense to the hiring of great talent, uh, which drives your point. I heard your first one. When the demand for talent is greater than the supply, you can't assume that the best people are going to apply. You have to attract them in, not weed them out. And I think that's a strategic blunder that most people in HR make. And, and that was your point, Lou. So I was quoting you on that. So, you know, in the background, for those who are watching, but uh, if you're listening, my background is about recruiting in the age of Googleization. So I wrote the first half of the book and it was all about uh, the future of work, what it was going to look like. And then 2020 happened and it was like, hey, I was pretty smart. All this stuff happened. But, the, but when I wrote it, it was like, I need to put it in context to something. I just don't want to talk about the future. So I, I, I put it in context about what recruiting was going to look like in the future. And everybody, but I don't recruit and I don't staff. I mean, you at least had a background in recruiting. I mean, I've recruited for my own company and staffed for my own company, but that was about it. I don't do it for other companies, but I, I'm a good, I'm, I market. I'm a content creator and I understand the process of marketing. And so the, the second half of the book was all about recruitment marketing. But when I was out there at a lot of the, the HR and the SHRM meetings and you bring this up, it's a, I said, you need to go to marketing and help them help marketing craft the story. The, the job posting is a story about your job. It's not like you said, it's not the job description. They go, but marketing, we don't get along with marketing. Okay, well then go to the CEO <laughs> and says, hey, marketing is not getting along with us. We need help. So we can either go outside and hire an agency or we can use the marketing department to help us. But just because they don't respond to HR, doesn't that's, that's a poor excuse. So we're, we're saying the same thing and, uh, you know, it, it's just amazing. We need to take a, a real short break here. I'll give you a chance to give us a chance to c collect our thoughts. I'll give you a chance to catch your breath, Lou. Uh, we will be back in about one minute, but thank you for listening to Geek Skeezers and Googleization. We got Lou Adler, the Sherlock Holmes of recruitment. And make sure you ask me yeah, what that means. Yeah, we so. will. Well, that's a good question. That'll be a good so stay tuned and we're going to find out what the Sherlock home of recruitment means. We've been talking about performance-based hiring, some of the challenges that we face, what it's like to, to uh, recruit in a perfect labor storm, or as Lou talks about it, when, when they, the demand is, is infinite, but the supply is finite. Stay tuned, everybody. We'll be right back. For most of us, change is freaking terrifying. And unfortunately, there's no app to adapt. That might change in the not-so-distant future. But for now, we're on our own. That means we can either accept our default future or reimagine our tomorrow. For those of you who choose default, good luck. Just remember, there's no pause button for change. You can't turn back the clock. And there's no get out of jail free card in this age of perpetual uncertainty. Like it or not, change will happen all around us. And that change is not becoming just more disruptive and frequent but volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, or VUCA. Fortunately, you can make change work for you and turn it into your personal and competitive advantage. Reimagine your future to one in which you're living with purpose, you're happy, and you're growing, thriving, and flourishing. If you're ready to rewrite your next life chapter and regain control of your destiny in this never-normal world, your journey starts here. Contact the leader in adaptability and making change work for you, your team, and your organization. Ira S. Wolf, adaptability.expert. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to Geek Skeezers and Googleization. If you're interested in learning more about AQ, uh, developing a growth mindset, you go to aqplusmindset.com and if you use the code VIP67, uh, we're offering an introductory discount. 
uh, and you go up with a 30-day coaching program to, to develop a growth mindset. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about your company, uh, just reach out to myself or Jason, and we'll be help, happy to, to guide you there. And a reminder uh, for Googleization Nation, if you're interested in insurance credits uh, for today's topic or any of our podcasts, uh, please go to GoogleizationNation.com, click on the, the menu tab, podcast. Uh, there is a form you need to fill, short form you need to fill out just to, to verify that you were listening, something you learned from today's show or any other show, and we'll send you an activity code and you will get to earn a credit. Lou. Sherlock Holmes of recruitment. There's a story behind that. I can tell. Okay. So let me kind of describe what evidence-based recruiting is about. And that's really what it means. I've interviewed three to 5,000 people. I'm a pretty good interviewer. I didn't start out being a good interviewer. I started out just asking the traditional behavioral questions and, oh, this person's smart, nice, good person. But then I was forced to, um, that wasn't forced. I, ha I had an opportunity to take on a huge client, but I had to give a one-year guarantee. And that meant I really had to understand everything about not only the candidate's capability, but also how they would perform on the job. And the candidate had to stay. So it was any reason. If the candidate left any reason, uh, I had to do the search over, give the money back. I didn't want to do that. So I became a very good interviewer, but not because I became a better psychologist. I started thinking like Sherlock Holmes. There's people who candidates work with have already recognized this person's competency. So let me give you a story. Uh, this was a search I had many, many, many years ago. It was a big client, a medical device product company. Uh, there was a cost manager search. Uh, a person would report to the controller of the company. Uh, the director of planning liked the candidate, director of internal audit liked the candidate, the VP manufacturing liked the candidate, the IT person setting up this new cost system liked the candidate. So final interview is with the CFO. CFO interviewed the candidate 10 minutes and said, incompetent. You've wasted our time, totally incompetent, can't do the job. I then called the CFO up reluctantly, but I called him up because I didn't want to lose the business. And I asked him, how could he make this judgment if this person's competency in 10 minutes? He said, the candidate was too soft. I said, are you aware that your team wants to implement an ABC cost accounting system on a McCormick and Dodgers and they transfer to SAP platform that this candidate's already done that? And it was because of his soft spoken nature what made him successful. He did it with IT, with a union, automotive facility, bigger and more complicated than you, was asked to do the only reason he can't isn't available to do take this worldwide project is his wife is going through her MD degree. She moved to the local area to get her MD uh, and her residency at the local hospital and go to the local school. It was a big uh, prestigious university for medical, but, um, and that's the only reason he's available. And you spent 10 minutes and made a judgment about nothing. And I really, now I might not have been that forceful, but then again, I might've been, I'm not sure. The CFO was, and he was a very in your face, loud, domineering person but when I presented that kind of evidence, he said, wow, I made a mistake. I'll interview the candidate again tomorrow. They spent two hours together going through that project. He calls me up right after lunch and says, Lou, the guy's great. I totally apologize. I misread this candidate because of his personality. I'd like you to implement that methodology here in my company, but that's what I call evidence. I'm not great at any of these jobs that I fill, but I'm really great at getting evidence of what, that, what happened to that person over time. And the one thing I really also learned is if you're a good engineer, a good accountant, a good marketing person, a good sales rep, and you just start with a company, it's recognized pretty quickly that you're a pretty good person. So they start assigning you projects that are important. If you're a good engineer, you get stretch assignments. You start working on cross-functional teams. If you're a good accountant, you start handling complicated accounting problems and get better clients. If you're a good marketing person, you start handling more important projects to help market. If you're a good... Uh, sales rep, they give you tougher clients or they put you through more advanced training. So you just got to look for that kind of evidence. That's the Sherlock Holmes evidence. And you and too many people focus on these raw personality traits to see if they can be this insightful and uh, great, brilliant person. I just focus on, hey, there's evidence. Other people have already made that decision for me. I just have to find that evidence. And I think that's really the difference maker. Uh, now, all my candidates have to go through all these assessment tests but when they, if I've already done it, it's amazing they all pass the assessment tests. But a lot of candidates have the assessment tests that don't uh, actually 
uh, aren't successful on the job. So it's focusing on the outcomes, the evidence, and uh, you'll just find that what people do with what they have is what drives success, not what they have. And it's a critical decision. And Lou, it sounds like that Sherlock Holmes approach, it addresses bias. Does it help eliminate bias in that process? Let's say this, Jason. Yes, if they would do it. So I say that if now, how do I get people? I talked to the CFO and presented that um, situation to him. How many times did that never happen? So how do you then control? We have a, I mean, let's say this. I'm going to contend most hiring mistakes are due to bias because you make judgments on superficial issues related to bias, communication skills. The evidence-based thing works, but how do you get people to process it? That's what I said. When you can get a hiring manager to focus on outcomes and not let the candidate, uh, let the hiring manager make a yes or no decision without evidence, that's really the way to do it. It's not easy to overcome, but I intervene in that specific situation. How do you get the system to intervene to overcome bias is more difficult. But if you start with a performance-based job description, at least you have a chance and let the hiring manager say, no, the candidate can't do this job because of these reasons or can do it because of these reasons, at least you have a chance. But intervening and controlling bias is an absolutely essential part of making this process work. And it's a, it's a challenge. Defining the job is the other challenge, controlling bias and having people just ask an objective assessment or conduct an objective assessment is the other part. Putting both together, you will make better hiring decisions and more accurate hiring decisions. So, so Lou, you mentioned a, an assessment and we, we use our assessments. Uh, we use what we call the big five and Jason's familiar with that. I'm sure you are too, the big five model, uh, the ocean model. However, you have a different big five. You, you've identified a big five for, for hiring, for hiring, uh, uh, hiring strategy based on the, a, a big five. Can you run, can you quickly give an overview of, of what? Well, let me do this. Why don't you kind of define your big five and then I'll tell you how I get to that okay. same issue. So first, tell everybody the big five because not everybody so, on that. So the big five that we do, and, and this is most tests, I mean, for, for anybody who's working with our company, uh, we use Harvard, used to be Outmatch, uh, but we have preview, big five assessments, but Caliper, Hogan, all these are based on what they call the big five model. And, and it's represented by the acronym OCEAN. So it's it looks at uh, the openness of people, the conscientiousness of people, extroversion, their agreeableness, and then their non-emotion uh, factor. So it's based on these five okay, personality so, factors, and then it's broken down further from that. Okay, so let me make the general statement. We had a client, a Fortune 100 company, who was in, located in Southern California, uh, and we presented a lot of candidates to them, and they used an assessment test that measured the big five, slightly different words. 95% of our candidates pass the big five because we focus on what they accomplished. If they can accomplish the work that you want done, they obviously have the right profile. So to me, the profiles are confirming indicators, not predictive indicators. They've, they have to, and now this candidate I told you, he would not be known as, he would not pass the extroverted test. And yet he was extroverted. So I'm gonna say the big five is kind of flawed because it really doesn't look at work in the natural environment, nor does it look at flexibility. This candidate could be extroverted, although his natural philosophy was introverted. But he dealt with unions in a very logical, soft-spoken manner, presented the logic to him, and they bought into it. He was not confrontational. So the idea that this big five is static is, in my mind, is fundamentally flawed. And I'm gonna go with every PhD that uh, advocates it. They don't know what they're talking about to some degree. Candidates can be, I am pretty extroverted, as you can tell just right now, but you put me in a complicated mathematical engineering problem with a lot of variables in it, I will become very introverted and very intense on focusing on that. It doesn't get at the fact that people can be both of those factors, nor does it get at competency and motivation and flexibility. So to some degree, I think these behavioral tests are flawed because they're not predictive, they're confirming indicators, not predictive indicators. So I, nonetheless, I give assessment tests 100% of the time for my final group of five or six candidates. It's also a validation to say, okay, how can this, how can this, this person actually be effective in this role? But then you start getting at flexibility, ability to deal with people and all those other things. So I think there's a fundamental difference I have with a lot of PhDs who overvalue these things. And I'm a bit concerned that people have gone down the wrong path here of, hey, there's a lot of different people, a lot of different things and people can be handled uh, be both as opposed to just being singular. 
sorry about going. No, no, no. This may surprise here. you, but um, and this is my business. I agree with you uh, that that the assessments are someone's higher hardwiring, and they may be fixed. They in their out of their work environment at home, how they take care of things. They may be an introvert, or they may be an extrovert, or they may be conscientious, and they may be attentive to detail. My uh, I mean, I've, I was in a profession that required attention to detail. You know, I started out a career as a dentist. Um, I, if you oh, look at right? my profile, it was, I am in the lower 10% of attention to detail. I have to force myself to dot the I's and cross the T's. But on, their, on, on the occasions that need to be done, everybody points to me because I'm so detailed. It's also why I left a profession that required that. Though I agree with what you say that when they when you take it at face value, it's wrong. But if you came if you came into me and you were very outspoken and animated as you are, uh, but it said introvert, I wouldn't say it's either that the test is wrong, but I would look at it to say there's two things that happened. Either you came in and put on a show for me, you practiced, you were rehearsed, right. and 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 you you had a recruiter who trained you how to do that. But you could, it was going to be exhausting for you to do that on a long-term basis. Or you learned a skill that, that I'm an introvert, but I'm on stage all the time. I could do that in spurts. But, if I, but I don't do, you know, people said, why, don't you, why aren't you a speaker? Why don't you go out 200 times a year? And you can make a lot of money. I got to tell you that I'm going out to speak with Jason next week. I'll do that. I'll be sure. on stage for an hour. I love it. If I had to do that over and over and over again, I'll walk. I, it, it just would drain me. So, so the, the assessments. I'll, I'll argue. I'll defend this assessments as being correct. It's how they use them. It's absolutely. Yeah, that's what I say. And I, I actually um, remember. And this is probably in 1980. Somebody gave me some assessment test and said, "You're not very detail oriented." That's what they said. And I said now, and I knew that they were wrong then because reality is I preferred to be extroverted. I preferred to go to parties. I preferred to do this, but I'm actually better at, de I was but an you engineer. Can be both. My but you can, job, be, you can be attentive this. to detail and be an extrovert. Not, well, was I actually enjoyed, I actually, my first job at 22 years old was when to blow up a nuclear missile when it was off course. And I really enjoyed getting into the detail. I was actually better at that than going to parties and being extroverted. So the point being, that's just, so I always had a problem with PhDs seeing it because they don't see the big picture. The big picture is this person going to be happy and competent and motivated to do the work you want done. The assessment is a subset of that. Being great at assessments doesn't mean you're great at hiring. And I think it's understanding the whole hiring process that's critical. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, now that we just got you really wound up, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, we're going to absolutely have to have you back, uh, Lou. We're, we're barely service. Happy to do it. I need about two weeks to come down, so, and I got to go into data, so, data so, analysis. So we're our listeners. They're gonna, they're gonna be. This is gonna be one of those. They're gonna be exhausted after listening to this. Jason, I, we always close with uh, one of our favorite parts of the section. Get to little, know a little bit more about Lou. I think we know a lot about Lou already, um, but we're gonna do our lightning round. So, Jason, turn it over to you. Yep, here we go. All right, Lou. So now we are. We're gonna bring it down just a few notches, or maybe we'll take it even beyond the ten. We'll see what happens. Well, I don't know. I think I'm, it's going to be real slow now. <laughs> well, our real lightning slow. round, we're just going to ask you a few questions to get to know you better on a personal level. And so let's start here. Well, let's see. I, we'll see if they work. Let's see. Let's take you back to high school. What's something that your high school classmates would be surprised to see about you now? That I was the funniest guy in the class. Well, no, they, they probably would have said that's what they would have said then. They probably would have said, uh, boy, you're real frank and outspoken, aren't you? They'd say you're still a frank and outspoken. So I guess that's what they would say. I still actually keep in touch with some of the high school friends that are re remaining. So, so I don't know. Is that the answer to the question? I, don't know the question was anymore. I love it. Absolutely. And I'll segue into thinking about vacation. Where's the favorite vacation destination for you? Well, we've been around the world a lot, but in COVID, I, I, we have an RV. So my wife and I are going out RVing. Um, Next Monday, in fact, and we're going to stay three weeks on the road, going to Yellowstone Glacier uh, Olympic National Park, and put about three, four thousand miles on, and take our dog with us, and have a nice time in our twenty-one foot Class B awesome. camper. What music are you going to be listening to on the way? Well, my wife is a little bit more modern than I am. I and I would like to leave sixties uh, classics, but uh, we're probably not going to listen to anything because my wife refuses to listen, and <laughs> so I don't know that we're going to have. 
Uh, the, when you go in an RV, it's a little bit noisy, so you really don't listen to much. But uh, well, one thing I am going to be listening to is the Rams are playing Buffalo on September 8th. And I said, we're going into a ho- we're leaving Yellowstone and we're going into a hotel between there and Glacier to I've got to watch that game. So that's what we're going to be awesome. Doing. And how about uh, one of the biggest influences on your life? Well, I guess I would say as a fellow that I work with uh, on my first assignment, no, I was, he transferred me, uh, convinced me to become a manager of financial planning. He convinced me to go to Detroit, Michigan. His name was Chuck Jacob. And we had a, this, and I'll, this is actually a pretty good story if I don't tear up. Uh, he was a remarkable guy, youngest CFO for a publicly traded company ever, ever. But at this time, he was the number two guy in a multi-billion dollar motor, motor, automotive operation. He brought me out from California to become in Michigan, uh, to go to Michigan as manager of capital budgeting. After about three or four days there, we had I had this really cr- critical project. It was like 11 or 1130 uh, in, the after, in the morning. And he, and he was at the University of Michigan hiring uh, MBA students. I had it. I knew I had an all-day project. Wasn't me at home till nine or ten that night because we had to report to the CFO and president the next morning. Uh, and he at eleven or thirty says, "Lou, get your butt out here to the University of Michigan. I've got sixteen MBA students. We got to interview this afternoon. I can't interview them all. You'll have to get out here." And I had never interviewed anybody, so this is I'm on an MBA. I have to interview MBAs. Chuck, I can't do it. I got this report. You know, we've got this report. Uh, I can't get out there. He said, "Get your butt out here. We'll figure out how to do the report." Hangs up. And I get there about an hour later from Detroit to Ann Arbor. And he said, there's nothing more important than hiring great people. Everything else can wait. He showed me how to interview candidates, which I still use some of those techniques today on closing. We interviewed eight or nine candidates. We took some from the morning. We had seven out for dinner that night. We did not get back to the office till 10 o'clock at night. And we completed the report, didn't leave till two in the morning. I uh, went home, showered, made a presentation to the president and the CFO of this group uh, the next morning, handwritten report. And the president immediately says, why is this report handwritten? Chuck said, we're out hiring MBAs. And that is nothing more important than anything else we can do. President said, you're absolutely right. Most important lesson I ever heard. Hiring is the most important thing you can ever do. Everything else can wait. And I learned that lesson in my first management job and it's still true today. I was writing that story up for the first edition of Hire With Your Head as part of the story. And I started crying because Chuck, that guy, passed away when he was 38 years old. But he was the youngest CFO for a publicly traded company. Remarkable guy. If he had lived, I wouldn't be here today because I would have gone. He's always had these cool ideas. Hey, Lou, let's do this. Let's do that. I probably would have done that rather than what I'm doing today. But so be it. I'm here. But there's nothing more in hiring great people. Uh, everything else can wait. And very few hiring managers believe that. It is absolutely true, though. I love that. And what a way to go out on a high note there with the final lightning round question. Love that, Lou. Well, Lou, uh, for those who are listening, they may not be able to see the banner that we have at the bottom. For those who are listening, how can they get in touch with you and learn more about what you and your team are doing? Well, I think the easiest way is to go to hirewithyourhead.com. That's the fourth edition of uh, a book that I've written about hiring. Uh, they go there. They can join our book club. There's other things there. That's the, probably the easiest way uh, to get there and learn about our book and join the book club. You don't even have to buy the book, um, joining the book club. But if you do, you'll actually get some great value from it and more stories like I just told. The book is filled with real stories. It's not a PhD stuff. It's real work out in the field with a recruiter trying to help companies hire great people. And just as important, maybe more important, help uh, good people get great jobs. And that's really the key to hire with your head. Awesome. Well, we cannot thank you enough for joining the show today. And I'm going to send it over to Ira as we get ready to close. But it truly has been amazing listening to these stories today, Lou. Great. Thank you very much, guys. Love to be here. Hey, Lou, it was great. Thanks for uh, carving out the time. Thanks for reaching out. So excited for uh, you to be on here. And that that was not just a platitude. We'd love to have you back uh, another time. We we literally just scratched the surface of things that we can talk about. Wow, Ira. So everybody needs to take a deep breath, right, <laughs> and catch up, catch, catch their breath after that conversation. Jason, I'll, I'll, I'll put it to you first. What was what was your takeaway? Uh, there were a lot, but the big one for me was the whole concept of marketing. When you're hiring, you're marketing and that you've got to tell compelling stories um, and that the way that we've done it in business for too long and we're still doing it, we're doing it the backwards way when we're just focusing on experience and skills 
um, incompetencies that we're missing the big picture of what we're looking for. So that was uh, one of the big takeaways for me today. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll agree with that. Obviously, I, I wrote a book, you know, and, and talked for the last seven years about the candidate experience. And, you know, one of my analogies is to the job description. If you went to the Ikea store, very popular, people love going there. But imagine how successful they would have been if instead of showing the, you know, the, the, the bed or the cabinet or whatever it is, they just showed you the instructions. You walk by and you see a list of instructions. They wouldn't be in business. We wouldn't be talking about Ikea or Home Depot or anywhere. Uh, if all they showed you was the instructions, and that's what HR continually uh, tends to do. Love, love the part about telling the story. And then the close, I mean, right up to the end. I mean, there were just so many valuable takeaways, but hiring great people is so rewarding. I mean, th that's more important than anything else we do is hiring great people. And that, that just gets lost. You know, that just becomes a task when that, that really is the purpose of HR. It's a purpose exactly of right. hiring. So, so, so very valuable. Uh, we really, we're, I know we're coming up toward the end here. We really appreciate everybody being here. Thanks for listening to Geek Skeezers and Googleization. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. If you're not part of it yet, uh, please go to googleizationnation.com. Uh, subscribe. It's free. Uh, you got newsletters and we've got a whole lot of stuff coming down the pike uh, in the next few months. Very exciting things. So um, you'll be getting more, uh, be more opportunities to, uh, to join and, and become uh, active uh, in our community. Uh, and don't forget about SHRM credits as well. Uh, if you're interested in the SHRM credits, go up to googleizationnation.com, click on podcasts, download the form, uh, it's very, very short. Take you a minute or two to fill it out, and we will send you an activity code. Perfect. And Ira, looking forward to seeing you next week at Indiana Sherman, my friend, on Monday. And so until then, I'm Jason Cochran signing off for Geek Skeezers and Googleization. Sending it back over to you, Ira, for the closing line. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up. I, I will be in Indiana next week, and Jason and I will both be together. Unfortunately, we will not be together live. On, uh, so next week, we will not have a live Geek Skeezers geek skeezers and googleization but you can go and listen to our 220 episodes uh, if you missed any up on uh, apple spotify amazon uh, iheart wherever wherever you listen to podcasts so if you need a, a week's break to catch up on some things but we will be back right after labor day with another great calendar of guests uh coming in and some exciting new uh a mini podcast uh that'll be that we'll be introducing toward the the uh later part of September. So really excited about talking about that. I'm Ira Wolf. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. Until next time, don't let the shift hit your plans.